MSW Media. This week, the nation debated the news that Donald Trump is implicated in campaign finance crimes, for which his former lawyer Michael Cohen was convicted and sentenced to three years in prison. As Republican lawmakers and Trump allies struggled to react, new evidence of Trump's guilt emerged, and for the first time, lawyers from both parties concluded that the president was in serious legal jeopardy. Would there be enough evidence to prove Trump's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt? What defenses could Trump raise? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, a WGN radio host who will join us regularly on this podcast. So, Patty, this week we are doing something very special and very different. Um, I debated different topics this week. Certainly, I know a number of of our listeners were interested in the Maria Butina case, and I think we will cover that at some point. Uh, But I decided, you know, when I started seeing people like Judge Napolitano on uh, on Fox and Friends, repeating basically the same things that I said in my uh, political magazine piece. Right. Uh, and obviously, Andrew McCarthy has said that he believes the president would be indicted. And there's been a lot of debate. I was on t- on Twitter this week debating with a lot of folks um, what the law is um, as to these campaign finance violations. Uh, I thought it would be really helpful to educate folks in a serious way about you know, these campaign finance crimes that it, it it looks to me now as the evidence has increased this week, it's looking increasingly to me like the, the, the government could prove this case beyond a reasonable doubt. That is uh, the first time I've really felt that way about anything other than obstruction of justice, which was kind of a there's a various legal defenses that could be raised. And, um, you know, it's uncle- you know, unclear what could you know, whether or not a prosecutor is ready to bring those here. We've got federal prosecutors that that have really put a lot of the evidence together. And um, a lot of listeners now are thinking, okay, we've already covered this. We've already talked about this campaign finance stuff. Why cover, you know, why cover this uh, in more detail? And the reason why I want to explain to all of you is there's a lot of complexities to this that really you you haven't heard us talk about in in any depth. And you aren't hearing when you when you watch cable news or even when you're reading, you aren't really hearing the depth of some of the issues that are going to be involved in any potential case, whether it's against uh, the president, uh, others at the Trump organization who are involved, et cetera. And a couple pieces of context I want to offer you as a, as a starting point. First of all, campaign finance violations are rarely prosecuted as crimes. That doesn't mean they shouldn't be. Uh, that doesn't mean in certain circumstances crimes. It's just that they aren't the sort of things that are prosecuted in a daily basis by federal prosecutors. So when I was a federal prosecutor, we prosecuted a lot, prosecuted a lot of fraud cases. We prosecuted a lot of, um, you know, narcotics cases and gun cases and things like that. But we didn't prosecute campaign fi- finance violations. Those are often dealt with 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 penalties. 
uh, that are, you know, like uh, financial penalties. I will say that I was involved in uh, prosecuting um, other uh, types of crimes that usually involve penalties. Most people who violate the securities laws or violate uh, the commodities uh, uh, laws end up paying a fine. Uh, those people felt it was very unfair when I would charge them with crimes and at times send them to prison. That doesn't mean that that was not appropriate to do. And there's a gentlemen who are sitting in federal prison uh, nonetheless, and they, they were convicted of actual crimes uh, and courts uh, upheld those convictions. Uh, so I just but so I want people to understand that uh, all of you to understand that this is uh, a unique area of the law. It's complicated. And there are some defenses here that you don't have in ordinary cases. And I want so, you know, one thing that is important to note is that the only time hush money payments of this kind have ever been charged as a campaign finance crime is the case of John Edwards. Now, you've heard about John Edwards used by some of Trump's allies like Rudy Giuliani as a defense. The reality is, I think that case, and you will see today, that case is probably more problematic for Trump than it is helpful for Trump. But what it set was it, it set a, a sort of a, an important precedent and any court. Any judge that is presiding over a trial relating to hunch money payments is going to look very carefully at the John Edwards case because that is the only trial we've ever had of, of crimes like this one. So th that judge determined what the law was, what, how the jury should be instructed. But it's also important to note John Edwards was found not guilty on one count. There was a hung jury on the vast majority of the counts. So that does um, caution about the, the way in which you could prove this case. So we've got three guests today. Mm -hmm. And the first guest, Josh Gerstein, is a, is a sort of a celebrated reporter, very well-established reporter for Politico. He covered the John Edwards trial, was literally there watching it unfold when it happened. So he will get into the weeds, help us understand that trial so that when I'm talking to my other guests about the John Edwards trial, we all know a lot about it. Then we have Trevor Potter who was the former chairman of the United States Federal Election Commission. And before that, he was general counsel for John McCain's campaign. So right away, you can understand why he's pretty relevant to sure. this topic. Um, but he also wrote a very uh, powerful op-ed that just came out this weekend in the Washington Post. He wrote it along with Neil Katyal, who was our recent guest, who you all know, uh, as well as George Conway, who many of you know is Kellyanne Conway's husband, but is also a very celebrated Republican lawyer. And, and essentially he said that, you know, it looked like the president committed these crimes and it was serious and we needed to take them very, that very seriously. We are also going to have, this is the first time we've had multiple guests on this podcast. We are then gonna have Bob Bauer, who is the former general counsel to President Obama's campaign and the former White House counsel to Barack Obama. So a powerhouse uh, uh, podcast today that's going to help you understand these crimes in a level of detail I don't think you can get anywhere else. So let's turn to Josh Gerstein. As I've already told you, uh, he is a reporter for Politico. He covers all things legal. Often, Josh is covering the, the legal issues related to the Mueller investigation, and he covers them in a level of depth that helps me learn things. And um, in fact, earlier this week, Josh corrected me about the jury instructions 
used at the John Edwards trial, yeah. which reminded me that Josh covered this trial, and I'm so happy to have him with us. Thank you for joining us, Josh. Hey, Renato. Great to be with you. Happy, happy to join you. Thank you. So, Josh, can, can you tell us, uh, you know, you, you covered this, back, this case back in 2011-2012 uh, for Politico. What was the general reaction to people when they heard that John Edwards was being charged with these crimes? Um, well, you know, people knew for a long time this was under investigation. I think Edwards had kind of slipped from the public uh, radar uh, after the 2008 uh, campaign. Uh, people were aware that this was an issue. You know, he had publicly denied uh, that he had had an affair uh, during the campaign. He was actually asked about it. People may remember at least his staff was asked about it on his campaign plane, and they, you know, told reporters they were being ridiculous and they were um, should be embarrassed to be asking about a story that was emerging through the National Enquirer. Uh, but, of course, in this case, uh, you know, it's interesting that National Enquirer figures also in this Trump <laughs> yeah. story as well. But in in the Edwards case, it turned yeah. out that the story was true. You know, it's almost an unbelievable story that at the height of a presidential campaign that um, allies of a, a leading candidates, uh, uh, you know, uh, one of the leading candidates, uh, financial allies would be essentially uh, hiding a woman in a safe house somewhere who was pregnant by that candidate uh, as a result of an extramarital affair and paying hundreds of thousands of dollars um, in her living expenses and medical bills. Um, it sounds like something taken from a, a bad um, late-night movie or some <laughs> other kind of uh, spy thriller or something, but this actually happened. Um, you know, this this is what transpired. Um, nearly a million dollars in payments uh uh, from a wealthy, uh, wealthy kind of uh, recluse and heir uh, who was a friend of Edwards, uh, and also from one of Edwards's top longtime backers in, in the trial lawyer uh, world. Uh, and so, you know, I think everybody realized that this was certainly something that you'd consider an impropriety, and Edwards's reputation um, was damaged, and I think ultimately sort of destroyed. Uh, by a result, not so much of these payments, but the affair and the fact that his wife was stricken with cancer at the time that this went on and then her eventual death, um, he became essentially a political untouchable. Uh, but there he was, for better or for worse, thrust back into the spotlight uh, by being indicted and, and then eventually having to appear in this courtroom in Greensboro, uh, North Carolina, and defend himself for, if I recall correctly, it was about an eight-week uh, trial with the lead uh, defense counsel uh, being uh, Abby Lowell, who, again, in a strange sort of coincidence uh, or a, a strange connection anyway, is now representing Jared Kushner, uh, the president's son-in-law. So um, it was quite a legal uh, showdown in a fairly uh, sleepy, uh, uh, sleepy town, I think, as a two-courtroom courthouse, if I remember correctly, not used to seeing the kind of high-profile trial that causes your court to be surrounded with satellite trucks and, and uh, you know, big time uh, TV reporters from from New York and, and so forth. Yeah, I think that's a good overview, Josh. You know, John Edwards had run for president a couple times. He was himself a former trial lawyer and a, and a damn good one. Uh, very, very impressive trial lawyer who had achieved a lot of uh, large verdicts on behalf of his clients. 
And he was somebody in, in, who cultivated an intro, uh, or excuse me, cultivated an image of himself being this family man who had this deep relationship with his wife. Uh, and his wife was a very nice lady. They had been together for uh, many, many, many years. Uh, and I think they, they talked about their first date was at a Wendy's. And they, they, they really cultivated that image. And so the, the news of the affair undercut that image um, in a pretty significant way. Would that, be, would that be fair to say? Yeah, I think that's true. And, and then just this overlay, you know, I guess people in politics, as in other walks of life, have affairs. But the, the overlay of the wife uh, having not just having cancer, but it, if you remember, it kind of recurred during the campaign and there was talk he might drop out and then he didn't um, just the sort of whole way it played out. Um, it just seemed kind of horrible from a personal relations kind of perspective and, and the kind of thing that would really I mean, I don't know, maybe we've all reset our expectations now on public morality and so forth. But it seemed, at least at the time, that it, this was kind of a fatal blow, certainly to his political hopes, if not any kind of, um, you know, uh, public career. But remember the confirmation of the affair and so forth. This all came sort of after he dropped out. It, you know, he ran aground in the 2008 campaign, uh, basically on the merits. You know, he couldn't, um, you know, match um, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, who were the leading Democratic candidates. He was consistently coming in, I think, third or fourth in those uh, early races and in the early uh, polling there. And eventually he ended up dropping out fairly early in 2008. But he remained on the radar screen as a potential vice presidential candidate. Um, and there was even talk uh, that maybe um, Obama might nominate him. For example, he was I think angling possibly to be attorney general. So, so he hadn't completely dropped um, off the political screen um, by the end of 2000, 2008. So I will tell you, and I'm going to sort of reveal a little something here. You know, when I was reading the news on this, I'm sure I've read, I read your stories, Josh, at the time uh, as well. Uh, I was a federal prosecutor and I followed this case very carefully because I am a lawyer. I'm a federal prosecutor and I'm interested in developments in, in federal criminal law. And I thought at the time that I was absolutely shocked that they were prosecuting this as a, as a crime. It seemed uh, to me like a, a very challenging case to take on. And usually federal prosecutors are careful about uh, choosing their cases and making sure they have uh, they have the evidence to, to and have the goods to prove the case beyond a reasonable a reasonable doubt. And I will tell you, as somebody who did prosecute a case that you know a type of law that had not been charged before, in that case we were extra careful because we wanted to make sure we picked exactly the right case uh, to bring the initial charges where we were going to have to defend the whole concept of bringing that type of case in addition to dealing with the charges themselves. You know, here it's always struck me and I'm obviously I have a little bit of, um, uh, you know, a different perspective than the typical person who is reading your stories, but it struck me as a challenging case for the, for the government. And I'm curious if you can explain to us what the government thought was strong about this case. Why were, why did they feel good about their evidence from what you saw? Well, I mean, I thought that the notion of the idea that they were trying to vindicate put in sort of the best possible light was you had somebody who, as I was saying earlier, at, at the 
there's some discussion now about the the timing and then comparing it to some timing with Trump. But putting that aside for the for the time being, it seemed to me it was at the height of a, a major presidential candidacy, um, a very significant amount of money, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, I think it came in somewhere between um, nine hundred and thousand and and a million dollars uh, spent on travel expenses, on housing, on medical expenses for uh, a woman who had had an affair with this candidate and and had become pregnant as a result of that um, affair, which was being kept under wraps. It wasn't a situation where this was all out in the open and uh, voters could judge it. It was something that was being kept secret. So that's why you see people describing it as hush money. And I think they were trying to vindicate the notion that, look, you know, you can't have people making off the books donations of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars into somebody's political orbit. I mean, imagine how indebted the candidate would feel to that person uh, when they get into office in that kind of a situation. It almost is a direct echo of what led to the federal campaign finance laws being put on the books in the early 70s, which was abuses where, you know, you had the Nixon reelection campaign with I think millions of dollars in safes that were being handed out in, in cash and just money sloshing around from various interests that nobody was reporting. And so I can I can understand why they would want to prosecute the case. And they did have what they thought was a star um, witness, a fellow named Andrew Young, who had been a driver for um, Edwards, who bizarrely at one point in this scenario claimed that the, the child that this uh, woman, Riel Hunter, was uh, the videographer who, who was uh, uh, Edwards's mistress. Um, Young eventually at one point claimed that that was his child, not Edwards's, even though that was false. And he ended up becoming sort of the star witness for the government who would testify that Edwards knew about these payments and you know, if not directed them, uh, blessed them in some way, shape or form, and basically arranged uh, this entire uh, set up to, to keep this woman uh, under wraps and to keep her comfortable, basically, uh, through the campaign. Um, I think that's the evidence that they thought was strong. They had the, the checks and so forth that were being paid uh, from these donors. Uh, and, uh, you know, um, they had the fact that uh, Edwards had uh, was not some kind of a novice or a newbie that somebody said, oh, we can do this. Like he's a lawyer, as you said, a very good lawyer, a very sharp lawyer. And um, he'd run for office. Pre- he'd run for president before. He'd run for vice president before. He'd run for Senate before. So he he, he really was someone who couldn't really say, I have no, no idea. I didn't have any idea that this might be a problem. So I think all those things together um, was why the government thought they had a pretty strong case. So who made the 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 payments in that case, uh, uh, Josh? So so here's where it starts to get complicated, Renato. Which mm-hmm. is so the payments were made by a, fe- a fellow named uh, Fred Barron, who I believe was had a title of something like a national finance chairman. He was another trial lawyer uh, who was a longtime friend of Edwards. Um, he made some of the payments, and then other of the money and the funds came from a woman named uh, Bunny Mellon, who I believe uh, is an heir to the or was an heir to the Listerine uh, fortune, and um, somehow became sort of kind of infatuated with Edwards, became convinced that he was the next great thing for the Democratic Party, and was willing to write checks for just about anything uh, that he wanted to do. And so between the two of them, they put up the money uh, to pay to rent her a house for her to 
stay at hotels and uh, the, the her being Riel Hunter, the, the woman that Edwards had had this affair with, um, and to pay her medical bills uh, through a series of checks um, that stretched from, I believe, early 2007 um, well into the end of 2008 uh, when they were handing out this money. And the reason I say that it's interesting is um, you know, one of the weaknesses here in the government's case was uh, you would think normally, well, you want to find out why those people donated the money. Uh, we'll just ask them and then we can just call them at trial um, and they'll say, uh, I did it to help his campaign or I, I did it for some other reason or he was my best friend and I knew he was in desperate straits and I didn't want his family to be hurt. So I did it for that reason. And the somewhat bizarre twist here for the government was that Neither of those witnesses was available. Um, Mr. Barron uh, unfortunately passed away uh, at some point um, soon after the campaign uh, ended. And uh, Bunny Mellon was, I think, 98 years old or so when these payments were made and 101 years old. Um, and I believe she, too, has since passed away, and she was just not in a condition to testify at the trial. So the government faced a situation where they were going to have to go in and basically try to through conjecture and uh, circumstantial evidence and the testimony of others, try to establish why these two people made their donations um, without having really firsthand testimony from either of them. And that was one of the problems that the government faced, uh, but frankly, one they knew before they brought the indictment and, and before the trial began. Yeah, I think listeners are starting to understand why when I was a federal prosecutor reading uh, Josh Gerstein and other reporters uh, talking about this, where I, where I was shaking my head and wondering why this case was brought at that time. A very challenging case on its face. Uh, and we've, he we've heard a lot, Josh, about the so-called John Edwards defense that's been bandied about a lot in the news lately. Uh, and I think that can be pretty easily understood, too. Can you just explain that to us uh, pretty sim- pretty uh, succinctly? I can try. Um, you know, he, he, he did have several different defenses. You know, one of For them sure. was that he didn't actually know about these payments. Um, and obviously, if somebody spent money to advance his candidacy, he didn't know about it. Um, you couldn't really hold him liable for that. Um, and that's sort of a factual issue that had to be argued. Do you believe Andrew Young? Did you find him? He was the driver that was sort right. of the quote-unquote star witness. But the main sort of a legal issue that the defense raised was, you know, that it appeared that at least part of the reason that the money was given um, was to advance Edwards's candidacy. Uh, but that probably wasn't the whole reason. I mentioned that Bunny Mellon was kind of infatuated with Edwards and uh, also that Fred Barron had been friends with Edwards for a long time. And so, you know, while it's hard to say exactly why somebody does anything, it seemed like both of them probably put up the money um, for uh, more than one reason, right? I mean, they clearly both wanted Edwards to be elected. They clearly, well, at least Barron understood that if this story came out, um, Edwards is career or at least his candidacy would be would be over Mellon I'm not clear how clearly she was thinking um, uh, given her age and some of the other testimony um, at the trial uh, but it seemed like it was at least plausible that this uh, one of the reasons this money was given was because these people did like him and were trying to help him help him out and so it became a major issue of contention before and during the trial 
Um, what are the rules in the law for what we might call a mixed motive um, payment? Usually when people are, are making campaign contributions, it's pretty clear that they're trying to get the person elected. But what, what if it's more complicated? What if you have a personal relationship with the person who's running um, and there might be more than one reason why the payment was made? Um, it just became a very messy issue at the trial, um, and there were even sub-issues like what did it matter what, what John Edwards' intentions were, or did he need to know what the intentions of the other two parties were? Because remember, it wasn't even totally clear that he knew they were making these payments. Um, it seemed to me like he probably did know, but it wasn't 100% clear. And so uh, that was a lot of the issue that um, became um disputed at the trial, rather hotly disputed, um, and, and how related the payments had to be to his candidacy to count as campaign contributions and therefore to have been illegal because they were never um, reported uh, either you know, by the donors or, or by um, Edwards' campaign um, committee. I was just curious about the jury, Josh, because they acquitted him on one and then they were deadlocked on the rest. And it sounds as though afterwards they they were leaning towards dismissing as well. Is that, is that accurate? Right. So I think they acquitted him on the, I think most of the charges corresponded to different dates of different payments. And I think one of the payments from Bunny Mellon came very late, like at the end of 2008. And remember, Edwards was basically out of the race, I think late January, early February, 2008. Um, and, you know, so it just didn't seem like when they were still making payments at that late date, um, that that had to do with his presidential campaign, maybe to do with something else, but not that. Um, so I think they quitted him on that and the rest, they were hung. Um, there were different counts, but, uh, uh, from different accounts that different jurors gave after the deliberations were over, but I think they said that um, on all the counts, the jurors were leaning mostly um, towards uh, acquittal. Um, and some of them did come out and say that they felt that the law um, in this area was murky. I think it was also compounded by the fact that the government relied on this quote-unquote star witness, um, Andrew Young, to say that Edwards knew about the payments. And whenever you have someone like that who's a cooperator, um, who has lied in the past and who's cut a deal with the government, you have the usual issues where some jurors may be skeptical um, of what that person's motivations are for, for testifying in the case. So um, that was what left, I think, jurors um, uncomfortable. Well, not all of them. Some of them were willing to convict on some charges, but a majority of them uh, unwilling to convict on a majority of the of the charges. So, you know, I think we're starting to see, and, and I hope listeners are understanding now the complexities here. So, first of all, the fact that I mean that you know that these payments continued even after can, his candidacy wasn't viable is another, I think, bad fact for the government because it suggests that there was a very strong urge for these payments to be made irrespective of his candidacy. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, and the, and the government tried to work around that by saying, look, uh, you know, he was still a potential vice presidential candidate through most of 2008, and then uh, he was uh, a potential attorney general contender, so it was all sort of in the realm of politics. And, of course, the defense came back and said, uh, you know, the, the federal election law does not govern somebody who's mounting a campaign for to run for, to be the attorney general. It's just not covered. And so um, I think that's why that acquittal came through on the final um, the, the final payment. But, yes, you're right, Renato, that was 
a bad fact for the government because it suggested there was a strong motivation that went um, beyond the um, the campaign uh, it, uh, the campaign itself. And one other thing I, I'd like to mention that I thought added another point of confusion, although it did, I'm not sure it really ever got to the jurors, and you may be able to talk to Trevor Potter later on about this, is, um, you know, at one point, the Justice Department had said publicly that it would only charge someone with a criminal campaign finance violation if they had violated some unambiguous um, directive or policy or interpretation of the Federal Election Commission. Um, and Edwards's defense brought this up uh, with the judge and said, look, you know, that's what the Justice Department has said. But on this issue of mixed motive payments and personal expenses, the rules at the FEC are kind of murky. And um, sometimes they've said that um, you shouldn't be charging these to your campaign. You should be paying them yourself. Um, and, you know, the defense tried to raise that. And the judge, I think, you know, set it aside saying, well, not my job to enforce DOJ policy. Maybe they've changed the policy. But I have to say, of all the things that were brought up at the trial, maybe that's a weird thing for me to get hung up on. I actually found that among the most troubling things of the trial in terms of the government's case, because it did lead me to wonder, you know, if they had publicly stated that policy, it just didn't seem like this case fit to me fit into that framing of something that was unambiguously a violation in the eyes of the FEC. And indeed, the FEC um, had some dealings with the Edwards campaign, was made aware of these payments, and decided not to pursue the issue. Um, and we do have kind of a dysfunctional FEC, and so that may be a factor here as well. But um, for have them to, decide, to have them decide to look the other way when it comes to applying you know, what you were talking earlier about the the financial penalties and the administrative civil fines that are sometimes put into uh, effect um, in these types of cases. Um, and then to have the criminal justice system come down on somebody over those same events, it seemed like something was, was a kilter. And um, I have to say that started to bother me a little bit as the trial went on and, and led me to think a bit more about, you know, what may have been some political factors that I think may have you know, played a role in, in leading to that case being filed in, in the first place. So let's talk about the um, the judge's instruction on this point, because I thought you corrected me on it. And I thought it was very interesting. Um, so one could imagine a law or rule that says that as long as an expense is 100 percent campaign related, then you need to report it or or expenditure, I should say, is 100 percent campaign related. Although there are very few such expenses, all sorts of things you do for a campaign have multiple purposes and they boost your PR value or, you know, or whatever your brand or other things Um, here, though, you know, I, I had thought, you know, if I if that you might have a test that it's primarily uh, for purposes of the campaign. But but what was the judge's instruction here on that point, Josh? Because I think it's very important. And I went back and looked at so, it myself. Yeah, she said um, an intended, or I'm not reading it right here, but but it was a real or intended purpose. And she seemed to feel like it didn't even have to be the primary reason that the money was paid. But it just had to be... I. She didn't use the word significant, but that was the way I took it, that, you know, this was one of the um, non-trivial reasons why these payments were made uh, was to advance Edwards's candidacy. Um, And so she wasn't, you know, the the defense was asking for an instruction that um, it had to be 
um, either uh, a primary purpose. Uh, I've seen Giuliani on TV uh, very recently saying uh, that the law requires that the, the sole purpose of the um, expenditure be to advance a candidacy. I have no idea where he's getting that from because I don't think that's the law, but that's what he's said. Um, and but the, the judge in this case said, you know, it just had to be a significant uh, a significant purpose uh, of the payment. I'm not sure entirely where she derived that from. Um, both sides argued their case. And, and despite her ruling, the defense kept um, in the closing arguments and, uh, and questioning and so forth, kept reading the law directly where it says something about the purpose of the payment. And they kept saying the purpose, the purpose, you know, uh, trying to make it sound like it had to be fundamentally about advancing um Edwards' campaign. Now, I think we should note that her ruling on what the jury instructions should say and did say in the case um, has never been reviewed by any other court that I know of, or certainly not by any appeals court, because this case went away. You know, there was an acquittal on one count, and the rest of the counts were dropped by the government. So um, certainly the defense was preserving all their issues. I was just looking at that paperwork today, and they lined up their objections to all of her jury instructions, and were clearly ready to take this up to to um, the appeals court if that you know if there had been a conviction in this case. So, um, just so everyone understands the context, those ju- those rulings on the jury instructions are the judge's view of the law in this case. Mm-hmm. And if there, there was ever another case brought, there's no question in my mind that that judge would would very strong would put a lot of weight on and be very strongly influenced by the jury instructions in the first case, because that's what another federal judge independently viewed the law as being. I'm involved in a case now where I represent a client who's uh, up for the second. Uh, the, he's the second person ever who's ever going to have a trial on a particular set of of, uh, of a particular statute. And uh, I also happen to try the, and win the first case. So w- the jury instructions in the first case are highly relevant right. uh, to the jury instructions in the second case. So, Josh, you had alluded to earlier the the potential political motivations for the suit. I, I, you know, one thing that's worth noting: this was done during the Obama administration, as when this prosecution occurred. Obama is obviously a Democrat, so is Edwards. So, what were the potential? I, I've heard some of these rumblings as well. What were the potential political motivations behind the uh, prosecution? Well, so the way this arose was um, there was a U.S. attorney who was investigating this um, down there in North Carolina, uh, who was by the name of George Holding. Um, And he was a conservative Republican. I can't remember precisely how, if he was a holdover from the previous administration or just a career uh, person, but he was identified with uh, Republican politics there in the state. And he took up this investigation and it, it went on. I mentioned he did, Edwards didn't get indicted to 2011, which means, you know, at least three years, three to four years transpired between the payments and and the um, indictment. And this was the kind of case that was pinging back and forth between North Carolina and Maine justice for various kinds of approvals and advice and clearances, I think, through that whole investigation. Um, And it seemed to me that at one point the case went up to the Justice Department for sort of final permission to proceed. I think Edwards' lawyers have said that they made an appeal to Maine Justice to try to 
head off this prosecution. And ultimately, Maine Justice, um, which was then under the control of Obama appointees, greenlighted this and the indictment was brought against uh, Edwards in 2011. Um, soon after the indictment was brought, um, Holding resigned as the U.S. attorney and announced his campaign as a Republican for Congress and then was elected to Congress. Um, and it seemed that, you know, he had the Obama appointees in kind of a tough spot where um, if they turned down this prosecution, he was going to resign and try to make that sort of the cause celebre of his um, of his campaign. Uh, and. You know, I think that uh, they could have given this some more consideration. They obviously would have taken a fair amount of political heat if they killed this because it would say, well, um, they were doing a favor to a prominent Democrat. You know, of course, you know, Obama and Edwards were not really friendly. Um, most prominent Democrats felt that Edwards had not really done Democrats a big favor in that 2008 race or in his conduct uh, throughout with this affair and the money and uh, and the, the child that was hidden and so forth. Um, so he really didn't have a lot of friends in the Democratic Party looking to do him favors. But people would have argued anyway that this was sort of some, you know, some kind of a political favor. And so justice allowed this case to go forward. Um, and, you know, I think ultimately we saw the result, which from a prosecution point of view was pretty unsatisfactory. And then um, very quickly after that jury verdict came in, um, we got word from justice, main justice, that this case was not going to be retried. So I think a number of folks have felt for a while that maybe there wasn't a great deal of courage shown um, at main justice in handling this and that um, it, it might have actually been a better decision to not have this prosecution go forward um, and to try to get some kind of civil action out of the FEC or something along those lines. And there was also a bit of plea bargaining with Edwards. Um, I think, you know, there was some effort to make Edwards agreed to a prison sentence if he were to uh, plead guilty, and I think he was unwilling to do that, and so that's part of why um, we had the trial. But it sounded like you know if they were willing to somehow reduce this to um, a misdemeanor or or maybe even a false statement charge, um, he might have pled guilty to that um, in exchange for being told that he wouldn't be recommended to go to jail. But um, that you know plea negotiation never came to fruition, and he did end up getting indicted. Well, I, I, Josh, I've learned a lot uh, from listening to you yes. and, and talking with you about this. I appreciate you coming on the uh, podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, no problem, Renata. Happy to do it. Great to talk to you. So now let's bring in Trevor Potter. Uh, Trevor was not only a former commissioner, but the former chairman of the United States Federal Election Commission. He's the founder and president of the Campaign Legal Center, a, a nonprofit organization that works in the area of campaign finance and elections. And also, uh, he was general counsel to John McCain's two presidential campaigns. So let's bring him in now. Trevor, thank you for joining us on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Happy to do so. So you wrote an op-ed this weekend in the Washington Post that I read, and uh, I thought it was... Um, very moving, and it seemed correct to me. What was your motivation for signing on to and writing this op-ed with uh, Neil Katyal and George Conway? Well, I, I have been concerned as a former chairman of the Federal Election Commission and someone who's been involved uh, in national political campaigns for most of my career that in the rush to defend President Trump, uh, 
and to say he has done nothing wrong, that we've seen national political leaders out there uh, basically saying the election laws, campaign finance laws, are unimportant, they're minor, they're meaningless, violations of them are not a problem. The Giuliani quote that caught my attention is, uh, no one was killed here. Uh, Senator Hatch, a respected Republican uh, leader, uh, said something that he's, he's since said he regrets saying, but what he said was, I don't care if the law was broken, he's still doing a good job. And all of that, it, it seems to me, uh, is putting the partisanship and the requirements of the political moment uh, ahead of where we really are as a country. I mean, we believe in the rule of law. Um, we want people to follow the law. Uh, we don't yet know whether the president uh, has personal criminal liability here. Uh, but that's a different issue than whether it's important to know who is financing campaigns uh, to make sure that uh, when reports are filed, uh, they include the totality of the spending and that you don't have hush money being paid in secret to influence the election by a corporation. And that is deliberately hidden from the public at the very moment it matters when they're deciding who to vote for. So all, all of that, it, it just seemed to me that a line had been crossed here and it was important to to call people on it and to say, wait a minute, uh, these are actually rules with a reason. Uh, these laws were passed uh, in the wake of Watergate because we'd seen corruption, we'd seen hush money payments, uh, we'd seen illegal corporate contributions, and we didn't want those to happen again. There's a reason those laws are there. Well, first of all, I just want to say as an American, I just want to thank you for standing up and defending the rule of law. I think at this time, it's extremely important for everyone, no matter what your pol political views are, to recognize the importance of abiding by the law and, and having respect for the law and for our judicial system and our court system and for law enforcement. So thank you for doing that. Um, I, I want to kind of as a starting point ask you, you know, one thing I've said to listeners so far is that campaign finance violations aren't... Um, are often are, are not often prosecuted criminally and i and I, you know i'm coming at that for obviously from the perspective of, as a, of a federal former federal prosecutor for a decade who prosecuted you know a lot of fraud cases and and uh you know all sorts of other narcotics cases everything uh, in between but not campaign finance violations but there have been campaign finance prosecutions and how would you, your view be of of kind of the way in which campaign finance laws are are enforced both civilly and criminally i i think you're entirely right that it is uh, rare to see a criminal violation of a campaign finance law uh, and or a prosecution of such a violation, uh, that makes them all the more important when they happen, uh, because that means someone has been shown to knowingly and willfully, which is the phrase in the law, uh, knowingly and willfully violate the laws. Normally a campaign, let's say, files a report, and maybe the numbers don't add up, they forgot to include something uh, in the rush of, of getting the report out, and they can correct those. Uh, sometimes it's, it's all a civil process before the Federal Election Commission. The treasurer repairs it. Uh, sometimes they pay a civil penalty, a financial fine, 
because the report wasn't filed on time or there were material errors in it. But the assumption is that those are honest mistakes or mistakes made in the rush of the moment. What's different is when it becomes clear, when facts are known and it becomes clear that somebody deliberately set out to file a false report or to hide something that was required to be disclosed to break the law. And in those circumstances, either the Federal Election Commission, if it discovers it, will refer it to the Department of Justice for uh, DOJ to investigate and determine whether there is sufficient proof to file criminal charges, or sometimes uh, justice or local U.S. attorneys will stumble on that themselves. Uh, It looks likely here that it's the latter that happened, that uh, either the Mueller investigation or the investigation out of the Southern District of New York was interviewing witnesses and looking at these payments and came across Cohen and, of course, the uh, search warrants of his office. So they then had tapes involving Cohen and candidate Trump, and they had uh, apparently tapes uh, and emails with a corporation, uh, American Media, that owns the National Enquirer. And so they suddenly had evidence that this was not an accident or a uh, sort of uh, negligent omission. This was a deliberate plan to engage in activity that violates the election laws and to hide it. And, th- and there have been prosecutions of such things going you know, back to, to the Watergate period where, ironically, uh, the president's, President Nixon's personal lawyer uh, was convicted and sent to jail for hush money payments uh, to uh, some of the Watergate burglars. Uh, but since then, uh, there have been crimes that uh, where there were federal convictions. President Trump, ironically, is very aware of this because he pardoned uh, Denise D'Souza, who was convicted of making illegal campaign contributions and hiding them. Uh, And when President Trump took office, he gave D'Souza a pardon for that activity. Uh, So it's certainly not correct to say that that these prosecutions are uh, never occur or that the activity is not criminal. But I think it's fair to say it has to rise to to a level of notoriety uh, to be worth a criminal prosecution. So I want to talk about this concept of willfulness because it has been a a subject of great confusion uh, amongst uh, people uh, that I've been corresponding with and in elsewhere you know maggie haberman the reporter for the new york times was mentioned uh, in perhaps slightly imprecisely but mentioned this willfulness requirement and people were all over her saying Sorry. no ignorance of the law is not a defense etc and in a rare subset of criminal laws uh, the tax laws actually are the most common but also in this type of law there's a willfulness requirement and Uh, The way I would describe it for people is that the person had to know that their conduct was unlawful in some way. They don't have to know the specifics of the law, but they had to have been trying in some way to violate the law. And that's the the requirement here. I'm wondering if you can help explain to us your view of what the the willfulness requirement is here and then also why it's 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 important to have that as part of the law uh, for criminal campaign finance violations. I I think you're you've described it just correctly. Uh, Willfulness 
does not mean you have to know that the U.S. Code in Section 478.C says the following. Uh, Even lawyers would not know the precise language there. But you have to know what you're doing, and you have to – there has to be evidence that you knew it was wrong. Uh, Part of that evidence would be hiding it. If you didn't think there was anything wrong with it, why would you hide it? Uh, So the reason that's important is that uh, we are talking about potential criminal violations. And there is a line here between violating a campaign finance law and violating it in a way that results in a criminal conviction and potential jail time. And we don't want people who are engaged in politics to go to jail for filling out a report inaccurately in error. Uh, So there's a a lot of latitude here uh, for people who are filling out federal campaign finance reports or state and local. On the other hand, there is a law, for instance, that says corporations can't give money to candidates. And it's important for that law to be enforced if it's going to be on the books, because otherwise people would simply ignore it. And then why have a law? And if you don't like it, you should remove it. But as long as it's there, it should be enforced. Now, if a corporation makes an innocent mistake, they didn't know the money was going to a candidate, for instance, or uh, something like that, then there's not a criminal violation. But the knowing and willful aspect would be, I knew what I was doing. I know this money is going to help Trump at his request. And I know there's a problem with this. Because I'm hiding it. I don't want anyone to hear about it. And, of course, in the case of American media, uh, they then had their lawyers look at it and say, gee, this is a problem. Uh, You shouldn't accept reimbursement from Trump because that would admit uh, implicitly that you broke the law in the first place. So the line here is uh, not that you knew the exact details of the law, but you knew what you were doing. And you, there, you knew, there is evidence you knew uh, that you shouldn't have done it. And, and here, in the case of Trump, I think we need to remember he had at this stage been a candidate for, what, a year and a half. His campaign committee had been filing reports showing all of his personal spending for the campaign. Uh, he had spent money that he had counted as a loan. He had spent money counted as a contribution. So... He was aware the campaign was reporting the money he spent to benefit the campaign. So for him or for his defenders to say, well, he didn't know anything about these complicated laws, he had apparently been following them for a year and a half up until the point where he decided that this was a personal expenditure he was going to make that he was not going to have on the reports. And according to Cohen, not reporting it was discussed with senior campaign officials. So you have a campaign context where they apparently knew this was happening, but decided they didn't want the public to know. What about, you know, one thing that strikes me uh, as a a former prosecutor who had to prove a lot of uh, complicated things to a jury is that what strikes me about this is the way in which the, the payments were handled. I mean, in other words, the the money for these payments came for let's say for the Stormy Daniels payment in particular came from a home equity line of credit for Michael Cohen then it went into essentially a shell company 
uh, that and it was you know then provided to uh, Stormy Daniels, and there was all uh, in an agreement that was not transparent. I would say use a pseudonym for Trump, etc. And then the reimbursement to Cohen involved different amounts of money paid over time in in a disguised way that resulted in false entries in the books and records of the Trump organization. All that to me is the sort of thing that I think would convince a lot of jurors beyond a reasonable doubt that they knew that this was unlawful. I'm curious what your take would be on, on that, on uh, it's the structure of the transactions and, and the importance of that as to willfulness. Yes, that's a classic uh, pat- fact pattern that would cause prosecutors to charge uh, a knowing and willful violation because you knew you were paying the money uh, or you were getting other people to pay the money in your direction, plus you were entering into a complicated series of transactions precisely to hide it. So I, that's, that is the sort of fact pattern that would cause a federal prosecutor to say, I've got a good case here. Now, the Trump response, I mean, he's had a series of responses. It essentially was, first, I didn't do it. I know nothing about it. Uh, then it was, well, if I did do it, it wasn't illegal. Now it appears to be, well, whatever I did, uh, I thought was okay because my lawyer told me it was all right. And so Cohen has, has uh, in a public interview, said, you know, we, we both knew it was wrong and we were trying to figure out how to hide it. But the Trump response to a jury, if, if all those facts are presented, I think would be, uh, it's true I was trying to hide it, but it had nothing to do with the campaign. I was trying to hide it so that my wife wouldn't know about this. And if I had reported it on the campaign forms, uh, the press would have picked up on it and it would have been a public story. Now, the, that was also uh, John Edwards' response, Senator Edwards' Uh, a number of years ago, uh, when he was accused of being part of the to hide uh, payments that were going uh, to the woman he uh, had a romantic relationship with and had just had a child with. And he said, I didn't want my wife, who was seriously ill at the time, to know about it. Uh, the difference here, I think, which is going to be a real problem for the Trump lawyers to work around, is that Trump had an opportunity several years before when this information came out uh, to pay Stormy Daniels off and to keep the information from his wife, and he didn't. Uh, Back in 2011, Stormy Daniels gave an interview uh, to a magazine, and the the same Michael Cohen wrote a letter saying, if you publish it, it's libelous. But he didn't offer to pay her $130,000 to keep her quiet. Uh, and that was at a time that Trump was newly married. He just had uh, a, a child with Melania. So if you ever were going to keep it quiet, you would have, for personal reasons, to protect your wife, you would have thought it was several years before when there was no offer of payment, as opposed to right in the middle of the campaign. And, of course, what we know now as a result of the emails and Cohen's uh, statements is that Stormy Daniels and the other woman were both threatening to go public and sell their stories. So you have uh, an alternative narrative, which is it's the middle of the campaign. They're threatening to go to the press. Trump recognizes this would be a political disaster and is seeking a way to 
uh, keep this information secret. And that's what the prosecutors will say is the uh, the reason for the payments, not uh, something purely personal. Yeah, I, I have to tell you, I think that is in many ways the most devastating piece of evidence uh, that the prosecutors would have in a potential trial of this because it's very, very hard to explain why you didn't pay Stormy Daniels off in 2011 and, you know, if it's really all about personal reasons. And, you know, as we discussed uh, earlier with uh, Josh Gerstein, uh, who covered the Edwards trial, the judge in that case found and instructed the jury that a purpose of the payment needed to be campaign related, but it did it, it did not have to be the sole purpose or even the primary purpose. Uh, so you, if there was a mixed purpose here, at least according to the judge in that trial, that would be a violation of the campaign finance laws. I'm curious if you can, for, first of all, comment on that, and also just talk about what you view as the distinctions between the Edwards case and the um, the case here. Well, I think you're right that the mixed purpose. Uh, ruling is important in the Edwards case, and it's getting, uh, I think there's a lot of misinformation out about that. Rudy Giuliani is out there saying incorrectly that the SEC ruled that if there was a personal element to a payment, then it's not uh, a campaign activity. Uh, that's simply not correct. Uh, the, your, the judge's motivation can be shown to be to affect the election uh, and keep information from the voters, then that is a sufficient uh, amount for a jury to find there was a campaign. Hey, tr- this was in a payment in connection with the election. Uh, what the FEC did in this, which is, I think, frequently mischaracterized, is in the audit that came after the Edwards campaign, because Edwards had taken public funding, there was an automatic FEC audit, and the auditors raised the question of whether this payment uh, by an Edwards supporter to someone else to go to the mother of Edwards' child should be included in the audit as uh, a campaign contribution that was not on the committee's reports. And the FEC decided not to get into it. It decided it didn't have enough facts, and it was not going to opine on it. So there's a huge difference between the FEC deciding not to opine on a question and the inaccurate statement that the, quote, FEC ruled uh, that such payments were okay and were not campaign contributions. Uh, So I think it's important to know that there is no FEC, quote, rule on this, except uh, that it, anything in connection with an election has to be reported if it's a in-kind contribution to the campaign. Now, it, uh, the reason that I have spent time on this podcast going through the Edwards case with uh, the listeners, as I thought it was an important parallel, it's the case that in many ways is the closest parallel. But I, I would say there's some obvious differences between them. And you, I think, have already highlighted one of them. You know, uh, you know, this is not the, the ca- a case where um, there had been a, uh, a romantic relationship many years earlier where the person came forward earlier and you didn't pay them off. You know, obviously, as, as you also alluded to, uh, Elizabeth Edwards 
uh, was go, was stricken with cancer, and there were the the, the personal consequences for Edwards w- were profound uh, in when that story what did ultimately make it to the public. Uh, I'm curious, just uh, speaking as uh, an election lawyer who knows the facts of both of these cases, what other distinctions you think are important for listeners to understand? I think there's a crucial issue of timing, which is Edwards happened essentially as he was leaving the campaign and before the first primaries had begun. Uh, So it was not in the weeks before the presidential election. Uh, Secondly, there was no threat alleged uh, that the person that the money went to in the Edwards case was going to make his conduct public. So what happened here in the Trump instance is that two women were threatening to go to the press and expose their relationship with Trump. There is no such uh, hush money written contract in the Edwards case. It wasn't right in the middle of the election. You did not have this frantic series of emails that we have from Cohen uh, where people are telling him they're going to go public next week, they're going to go public tomorrow, you have to get the money to her to stop it. None of that is in the Edwards case. And I think those would be uh, significant factual differences uh, for a jury to consider. I have to ask one of the questions from our Twitter followers, and I and I uh, ask for your pardon if it's redundant to what we're talking about, because I know you talked about, uh, you know, ways in which they might be trying to cover up the money and where it came from. The question is, if Trump offered to pay cash, as he said in the audio, why did Cohen pursue bank loans and make things worse? He had consulted with Trump's CPA. And was Trump strapped for cash before the election? And Trump organization paid Cohen back soon after. Where did that money come from? Those are some of the questions all in one. So there is some speculation that uh, President Trump was cash short uh, by the end of the campaign. Uh, He had been self-funding the campaign, usually in the context of loaning it money. Uh, but I think there's a combination of the fact that he may have been tight on cash at that moment, plus everything we know of his business career in all the books uh, is that he was famously cheap and uh, often tried to find ways uh, either to pay less than he owed or to have someone else cover for him. So here, what apparently happened uh, is that he knew he had to pay the money, uh, but he didn't. And Cohen kept saying, where's the money? I need the money. And eventually Cohen went and uh, took out an actual line of credit against his house uh, and used his own money, uh, we assume with the intent of being paid back later. Uh, And indeed he was. He was paid back by uh, the Trump organization through uh, what you've noted was this a series of false invoices and grossing up and hiding it uh, all after the election. And the other payment made by uh, the American Media Corporation was made out of their corporate funds. There was a side deal, which, again, we were told this last week, uh, Trump may have actually been a participant in the discussion. Uh, American Media was told that if it made the payment, it would be paid back later. Uh, So it went ahead and made the payment. There were legal documents drafted uh, for them to be repaid uh, again through the uh, 
of shadowy LLC that Cohen had set up so that there wouldn't be any Trump fingerprints on it. But then the American media lawyer stepped in and said, don't take the repayment. That is evidence of a campaign finance violation. One thing that I think is interesting to discuss is uh, Trump has talked about an advice of counsel defense, essentially, or tried to suggest that. And, you know, this is something I've had to deal with a lot as a prosecutor. I've put lawyers on the stand. I've actually convicted a lawyer at one point. And, and essentially, um, an advice of counsel defense is where your your lawyer counsels you to do something, and that turns out to be a crime, and you have a defense in which you could say, I did what I I did what my lawyer told, advised me to do, uh, and then you have to prove that you're, you, you have the burden of proof on that to prove by what's called the preponderance of the evidence, by 51% that your lawyer advised you to do that. That doesn't seem to be the case here. What seems to be the case here is that Cohen was involved, but not really in his capacity as a lawyer and wasn't giving advice as a lawyer. Um, but it seems to me, as somebody who's had a lot of cases in which lawyers were somehow involved, uh, that the presence of a lawyer would be helpful to Trump, as you pointed out earlier, just merely kind of saying, well, my lawyer was involved would be helpful to him. Is that your, your take as well? Well, there's another element to what you've described, which is uh, your lawyer cannot be overtly conspiring with you to break the law. Uh, so not only does that defense uh, count on a lawyer saying it's you should do the following, but it counts on both of you believing, or at least the, the client getting this advice, that it's not illegal to do what the lawyer is saying. Uh, if, if the lawyer says, you know, here's a good way to kill someone, uh, and you follow their advice, you do not get a defense that you were only following your lawyer's uh, legal opinion, because you both knew at the time that it wasn't proper to do what the lawyer was saying. And that's essentially Trump's uh, Cohen's response here is to say, look, we both knew that this was a problem. We shouldn't do it. We were trying to figure out how to do it in a way that we wouldn't get caught. So it's a factual question, as you say, as a former prosecutor, uh, can you prove to the jury that you thought this was permissible because your lawyer was advising you to do it? Uh, and if it turns out you are ordering the lawyer to do this, you both understand it's wrong and you're trying to figure out the best way to do it so that no one ever finds out about it, then you don't have that as a defense. You can't say, uh, my lawyer made me do it. And of course, here, what Cohen has said in his plea agreement is that he was directed to do this uh, by, by Trump. And as I noted earlier, uh, at this stage, Trump was not a unsophisticated political operator with no knowledge of the federal disclosure requirements. He'd been disclosing uh, his in-kind contributions to his campaign for some time. Thank you so much. I'm a uh, real honor, by the way, having you on this. Thank well, you. Well, I, I thank you. So let's bring in Bob Bauer. Uh, Bob was the former White House counsel for President Obama. He also was the general counsel for President Obama's presidential campaign. And he's already been a guest on this podcast before, so we are bringing him back a second time because he was so fantastic the first time. Thank you for joining us, Bob. I appreciate you uh, being back on the podcast. It's a pleasure. Thank you. So the last time you were on this podcast, we talked a lot about Don McGahn uh, leaving his post of White House counsel and, and your views of the, of the office of White House counsel, what you did uh, for President Obama, 
We also talked about potential campaign finance violations uh, in the form of Russians uh, contributing to our election and the indictment that Mueller had um, had uh, presented uh, related to that. But now we're faced with potential campaign finance criminal violations that um, have implicated the president of the United States. And I'm curious if you could just tell us your own personal view as an election lawyer and as an expert in that area of those particular violations. They strike me as serious. You have two uh, separate federal investigations, one by the special counsel, one by the Southern District of New York. And it appears that they amass very substantial evidence that ultimately left America Media Corporation, which entered into a non-prosecution agreement, but acknowledged responsibility, acknowledged guilt, and Michael Cohen, who pleaded guilty, to, in effect, give it up and accept responsibility. So it seems that this case was exceptionally strong. And you periodically hear some people say, well, the campaign finance laws are technical and the provisions involved here are technical, but they can be violated and they can be criminally violated, and it depends on the level of evidence. And it appears from everything we can see so far, and I suspect we'll learn still more in the future, that the evidence here was uh, exceptionally high. Yeah, one thing I've mentioned uh, previously uh, earlier on the podcast was that you know, I had been involved in bringing charges that were first of their kind charges, and when I and when you know my I was doing that, and my and the people above me who are who are analyzing and approving the 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 charges that that I was bringing, um, we we took an extraordinary amount of care in that circumstance, and I I suspect here, given that the president of the United States is involved in this case. Uh, you know, in, is certainly, um, uh, you know, the, uh, a subject of this investigation uh, and that uh, the violations, as you point out, are, you know, th- this area of the law can be a bit murky. Uh, I suspect they, they were very careful in uh, the conclusions that they've drawn and in their decisions to bring these uh, particular charges. Now, w- one thing that we've talked a little bit about thus far is what um, President Trump's uh, defenders have labeled the John Edwards defense. In other words, that these campaign finance, uh, these expenditures were not really, in their minds, motivated uh, by a desire to be impacted by the campaign, but were motivated by some other purpose. Can you explain to us your view of what the law is as to when a contribution uh, is made whether you know when it when that is something that is in support of a campaign or you know does it need to be the primary purpose of the contribution the sole purpose a purpose uh, and um, how do you think that defense would play out here I don't believe it would be successful and I think the appeals to the Edwards case are unavailing so let me begin by just saying a bit about the law the law on this is constructed to distinguish between expenditures that are not campaign-related, as you say, and those that are. And certainly there are some expenditures that may be undertaken with the campaign somewhat in mind or as a background, but we would regard them as personal expenditures. So, for example, uh, the candidate decides to purchase additional clothing, which he or she believes is better suited to their role as a campaign, as a candidate. Uh, or the candidate decides that the car that they're driving in is not adequate for, you know, the town-to-town driving that they'll do campaigning for office, and so he or she buys a new car. There are certain expenses of that nature that are per se personal in character, 
But there are other expenses where, as you suggested a second ago, the motive may be very much campaign-related. They fall outside those per se cases. And there the law, in effect, uh, sets up a test that runs like this. Uh, the question is whether or not the expense would have been paid irrespective of candidacy, entirely irrespective of candidacy. The government takes the position in this case, and I think it's entirely supportable. And by the way, it's also consistent with the judge's instruction to the jury in the Edwards case that if a primary purpose of the expenditure is campaign-related, then the campaign finance laws apply. And this is where the evidence, uh, apparently quite substantial, that motivated the pleas by Michael Cohen and AMI come into play. There is apparently very substantial evidence of purpose. Let's begin with the president's own lawyer testifying to the purpose, AMI testifying to the purpose, and agreeing in the non-prosecution agreement that it entered into that it was going to do a better job of explaining to its staff how the campaign finance laws operate and how it can separate out uh, its normal journalistic activities from those that clearly implicate the campaign finance laws. So motive clearly matters. The primary purpose clearly matters. The quantum of evidence is ultimately decisive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that's one important distinction between the Edwards case and this case. In other words, in the Edwards case, um, as we heard earlier in the podcast from Josh Gerstein, the people who are making these payments weren't able to testify. One had passed, the other had was elderly, uh, were not able to testify regarding their, their, their reasoning behind the payments. Here we have two other entities involved in these payments. Uh, the American Media, as you pointed out, this is the company that owned the National Enquirer. And then and Michael Cohen both coming forward and saying, no, the purpose was campaign related. Yes, and keep in mind something about the uh, American media's plea here. Uh, it's entering, entering into the non-prosecution agreement and conceding the violations of the law. As a media-owning company, it had powerful institutional reasons to resist the application of the federal campaign finance laws. As you know, uh, journalistic organizations operate with wide latitude under what is called the media exemption. So there are steps that they can take to influence elections that are not covered by the campaign finance laws. Think of an editorial or a publication that runs a series of investigative pieces, very, very critical of a candidate by a newspaper that has taken an editorial position favorable to that candidate's opponent. Those activities are covered by the media exemption. And the press resists the notion, uh, actively and un for the most part understandably resists the notion, that in the normal course of operating as it does, it might run afoul of the campaign finance laws. Here, however, the evidence of purpose appears to have been so overwhelming that this media corporation entered into uh, this non-prosecution agreement, conceded the violation, and has said that it will undertake to better train its staff and circulate appropriate written standards in the future. That, I think, so sharply distinguishes this from the Edwards case. And as I said, even in the Edwards case, uh, the judge's instructions were consistent with the view that even if there's a personal element involved, if there's a significant motive to influence the campaign, the campaign finance laws still apply. And I should also mention that the verdict in the case was mixed anyway. There was one acquittal, uh, one count on which uh, Senator Edwards was acquitted, and for the most part, the jury couldn't agree. So this case went all the way to trial on that theory, and that theory of the case still stands, and it's a I, I think, rock-solid position for the government to take with this kind of evidence in the Trump case. 
And, and I know that a lot of the Twitter followers are curious about that interview that Trump did with, uh, with Greta Van Susteren. And they want to know if that's, a, a, you know, if that discussion is a, pr- enough proof that Trump understood that it was illegal. And can you explain just, uh, or uh, Patty, what you're referring to by that interview with Greta Van Susteren, just right. so everyone who didn't didn't watch that video knows. Right. Well, in 2000, was it 2012? He sat down with Greta during, uh, was it during the, the trial? And he had talked to a lot of lawyers, and they all said that it was, he was basically saying it doesn't seem like it's illegal. They're ruining John Edwards' life, and uh, they they shouldn't even be prosecuting it. And so, is, is that essentially what? That's right. And I think the question is, you know, what is your take on? how that might impact the government's case as to willfulness. In other words, you know, being able to uh, prove that in, in, in the case of Donald Trump that he knew that this was against the law. Nothing that he has said, and by the way, for the bad matter, that his lead defense counsel has said helps him at all. It's, as you suggest, very counterproductive. <clears throat> Let's take it from the top. First of all, uh, he acknowledges that he followed the Edwards trial and he understood there was a campaign finance issue. If he followed the Edwards trial, then he also understands that it went to trial on that theory and that the jury deadlocked on some of the counts. So I'm not quite sure what he took away from the trial, but he was certainly aware, <coughs> excuse me, of the campaign finance impl- uh, questions that uh, were presented to the jury. And so it's somewhat inconsistent with another interview we gave in the last week in which I think he said, in effect, well, who's ever heard of the campaign finance laws? I mean, nobody ever proceeds criminally in these cases. At most, what we have is a civil violation. So I think the inconsistency there is obviously unhelpful to him. Also, let's not forget, Donald Trump was a contributor for years. I haven't assembled a full record of his campaign contributions, but he made a point during the campaign of saying, that he was an active contributor because he understood how the system worked and he wanted to grease the political wheels. If you check, you know, the websites that track contributions off of the public reports, he made contributions. He clearly understood you made contributions within limits. He would have received, you know, donor cards that reflected how the rules fundamentally operated that alert donors to those limits. And last but not least, he became a presidential candidate. He established a presidential campaign, which included a large compliance unit with a general counsel heading it up, who is a former chairman of the Federal Election Commission. It doesn't seem to me he's going to have much luck uh, arguing that uh, he had no idea he was operating within a regulated area. He didn't apparently ask the lawyer nearby who knew the most about it, namely Mr. McGahn. He relied on Michael Cohn. And I, I don't want to jump too far ahead of us, but in speaking again of how he uh, stumbles over his own public explanations, he seems to have indicated recently that he was, you know, putting up something of an advice of counsel defense. In fact, I think he referred to that explicitly, that there was a mistake here. It was Michael Cohn's mistake. But he knew perfectly well that Michael Cohn didn't know anything about the campaign finance laws or, laws, or certainly wasn't someone on whom he would rely for an expert opinion. And moreover, at the same time that he was saying it was up to Michael Cohn to police this activity correctly, he also, to deride or to dismiss Michael Cohn's significance in his world, said that he didn't really rely so much on Michael Cohn as a lawyer, but only for low-level work and primarily for public relations. To say that this is not a witness who would withstand cross-examination easily is an understatement. Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. First of all, you know, it's, it's useful for, for listeners to understand that the lawyers are specialized 
Um, and, you know, someone like Bob is an expert in election law. That's the reason that I present him to you as somebody who understands this area of the law in a way that I don't, because I don't practice election law, never have, uh, even though I'm a lawyer and I've been a lawyer for, you know, many years. Uh, I will say, you know, that, for example, that your uh, understanding of the media exemption and why that means that it was even more of, of an important news that AMI, that American Media, signed that non-prosecution agreement helped me understand that in a way I didn't understand. So when we look at this advice of counsel um, issue here, one thing I find interesting, you know, you brought up the fact you know, that he has campaign compliance uh, staff. I imagine that would come into play in a trial of Donald Trump if, if such a trial occurred. Because, you know, first of all, if, if you raise an advice of counsel defense, you would you waive um, you waive uh, your your attorney client privilege. So that's the first Ooh. issue. So the scope, the question would be the scope of the waiver uh, on that point. But certainly, even if they didn't get to the contents of the communications, if I was the government, I would put on those people, including that former FEC chairman. To, to testify regarding the fact that they did provide him campaign advice. And I suspect, Bob, you would agree that if those people took the stand, they would not, they would not say that they thought that this was their understanding of, of election law. Would that be fair to say? Not entirely clear to me what Don McGahn thinks about it. There are some, and I think they're in the minority within the profession, who continue to insist that this can't be a campaign finance violation and that it can't even be a criminal, it certainly can't be a criminal campaign finance violation, because he had some personal reason, we can hypothesize, for entering into these hush money agreements, and that is to spare himself embarrassment for his family and potential marital conflict. So they argue that it's not a violation of law. I do not believe that is the majority view. I don't think it's a sustainable view. I think it looks past the enormous evidence that apparently has been assembled here. Michael Cohn referred to it as a, quote, substantial amount of information, close quote, that corroborated his testimony. We've seen some of it. We haven't seen all of it. And so it seems to me that if you have this amount of evidence, uh, which apparently is extraordinarily high, then it, I don't understand the basis for the argument that it is in violation of the campaign finance laws. Now, what Don McGahn, Don McGahn is not keen uh, on the aggressive regulation of the political process. He's been very vocal in his earlier career at the Federal Election Commission and in private practice on that point. But certainly, he's not going to be in a position, I strongly suspect, to say that the President of the United States, uh, at the time a candidate for president, ever asked him, knowing fully well what Donald McGahn's background was. And by the way, he wasn't the only expert campaign finance lawyer in the employ or available to the Trump campaign. So the natural conclusion you draw is that in keeping with the other arrangements that were made furtively to conceal this activity, this was a question that quite deliberately Mr. Trump chose not to ask the people who would give him the answer he might not want. That answer could range anywhere from you can't do it to, gee, it's a problem, we can't do it this way. He and Cohn and his collaborators at AMI were in a hurry to do this, and they did it in a way that naturally, and you, you know this well, attracted the attention of prosecutors because of the various schemes of concealment that they used. Certainly McGahn would, uh, and again, I don't know what he would say, but I, it doesn't sound to me even remotely plausible that he was asked. He's a very good lawyer. Yeah, I agree with that. One thing I would just say is that the way in which these payments were disguised 
both seems suggestive to me that of a knowledge that that there is something illegal going on here but second of all that they were done without the consultation of a lawyer because if a, a real first class lawyer like uh, mr mcgann or or you or me had been uh, consulted, I, I would have certainly advised the client to stay far away from all this because it creates a, a lot of potential liability beyond uh, campaign finance because you have false statements in the books and records of the Trump Organization, for example. Yes, I, I, I had not given this a great deal of thought, but I, I would have to say that even if at the end of the day a better defense would still have crumbled to the ground, there would have conceivably been some ways that he could have minimized his exposure in structuring these arrangements that he simply didn't pursue because he was talking to the wrong people. He was telling Michael Cohn exactly what to do. Cohn said repeatedly he was blindly loyal to the president. Cohn just went ahead and did it uh, together with whoever else he was working with in the campaign. He said he consulted with some campaign operatives and with whomever else he was consulting at the Trump Organization. Uh, a, A lawyer might reluctantly say to him, well, if you really have to do this, and if your concern is, at least in substantial part, to spare yourself personal embarrassment, here's the best way to manage your exposure on the campaign finance legal issues. There's no evidence that any such question was asked, and nothing in the execution suggests anything like good advice received. Yeah, it's interesting to me. You know, now listeners have heard all sorts of different perspectives and a lot of depth on this issue more than I, I, I don't know if, if, if you, you, if any of you have probably heard anywhere else, this level of depth on this subject. And, and, and I think my, my, what I've drawn from this, and I hope some of you have is that the, the case here against Trump on, as to some of these issues is very strong. In other words, John Edwards had a case brought against him. He was not convicted for various reasons, and in many ways the case against Trump is stronger, and including on this willfulness point, which is interesting to me, because to me that would often be the sticking point for a potential uh, federal criminal prosecution of the campaign finance laws, which is most people don't know the details of campaign finance law. And if if I as a as if if I was still a prosecutor and I was presented with this case, my first questions would all be around that because that would be my concern: proving willfulness. And as you point out, Bob, um, there's a lot of evidence here that seems like it would defeat that in this particular case, which I find very interesting. We have a type of law that is not often enforced criminally. It is enforced criminally on a regular basis, but not often, and yet. This appears to be an area of very significant potential criminal liability for the president of the United States. I must say that when you were first on this podcast, I would not have expected that this would be the context in which you would be coming back. Well, yes, and we didn't also note a couple of other points, I think, that distinguished it from the Edwards case. And these were the arguments that were made early on before it became clear how much evidence the government actually had. So I didn't mention them first. But the immediate proximity of all this activity, this was not a case where, you know, some time back he was scrambling to protect himself against these allegations. This was an election year eve initiative coordinated with his campaign. Uh, Members of the Trump campaign, including the candidate himself, were, according to the plea agreement, involved with Michael Cohn in arranging these payments. And the conversation uh, that... Mr. Trump early on had with David Peckard AMI appeared to be organized entirely about around what AMI could do to enhance uh, his 
chances of winning the presidency. So the election-related purpose here, uh, it seems to me, is pretty clear. Plus, I'll just mention one other thing, and then I, I won't bore you further with this, but he understands perfectly well that if somebody in the middle of a campaign advances over $100,000 to help him solve a problem that is defined as a political problem, that's simply clearly a contribution in kind. It just is. And the argument that it isn't is, I think, strained beyond any you know, a general acceptance. So what about the, the view that some have that federal uh, campaign finance laws should not be enforced criminally, that we have these criminal laws, but they should they should never or almost never be enforced criminally. I have heard some intelligent people have that perspective. What, how would you respond to that perspective, to that the people who have that perspective, Bob? I would respond by saying that the campaign finance laws are set up so that there is a consistent alternative to criminalization. The Federal Election Commission itself has the authority to pursue knowing and willful violations and to seek penalties at aggravated levels and to enter into an agreement in which the party with which it is settling acknowledges that the violations were knowing and willful. So the campaign finance laws are structured actually on the one hand to allow the DOJ to exercise concurrent jurisdiction, but to offer the department any number of avenues to avoid getting involved if a violation can be prosecuted civilly. Having said that, Congress has been very clear since 1974 that in appropriate cases, and I can give you an example of a particular kind of case that's been prosecuted relatively regularly, in appropriate cases where core provisions of the statute are involved and the intent to violate it is substantial and beyond a certain monetary threshold, the department not only may, but should prosecute. An example would be straw donations, where I decide that I've hit my contribution limit. I know that I've hit my contribution limit, so I utilize you as a straw donor, and I offer you cash to make contributions in your name so that I can get the additional money to the candidate, and is your name, not mine, that shows up on the public report falsely as the contributor of the funds. The department prosecutes those cases. Uh, It seems to me that here you have you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars that were spent on the eve of an election in knowing and willful violation of the campaign finance laws. And the department will certainly take into account that the person engaged in that activity is someone responsible for, I think, charged with a significant additional level of responsibility to look after the matter, who had resources available to him that he could have used to consult, that he could have used to avoid the violation. It's very hard for me to see, based on what we have seen emerge recently, why the department wouldn't have prosecuted this case. And by the way, I should mention, I wasn't convinced that that was the the case at the beginning. That is to say, early on, when the hush money payments surfaced, amid all of the confusing statements that were made about what Trump knew and didn't know and the potential for a very mixed motive and so forth, it wasn't clear to me where it was headed. But now it seems to me the evidence is so substantial, it's clear why the why the uh, case was prosecuted. Yeah, I will say as a citizen, uh, I want uh, my my uh, elected representatives to be abiding by the campaign finance laws. Yeah, and uh, absolutely. And and impeach when necessary. Yeah, or or yes, and certainly and whether it's civil, criminal uh, enforcement or even impeachment when necessary. 
Bob, thank you so much for joining us in the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Sure, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. (laughs) 